0: Welcome to Hunters and Unicorns, the pre-sales edition of the 33 CXOs. Today, we welcome Sung Park. Sung is the Senior Vice President of Field Engineering and Customer Success at ThoughtSpot, and he entered the world of pre-sales at Blade Logic, having previously been a database administrator. Despite no prior exposure to sales engineering, he took to the playbook expertly and quickly established himself as a senior leader going on to take high-profile roles at both BMC and MongoDB. In this episode, we discover what makes Sung the perfect partner to CROs as they establish go-to-market strategy and rapidly scale the business. This is his playbook.
1: the pre-sales edition of the 33 CXOs, we discover the crucial role that the pre-sales organization played in what is regarded as the greatest success story in the history of software sales. When John McMahon reunited the team at BladeLogic, he had a clear vision to create a sales and pre-sales organization that was in absolute unison. The symbiotic and almost telepathic sales rhythm is the benchmark for best practice. The outcome is not only execution excellence, but a shift to a value mindset which transcends any shift in technology. The pre-sales team now take executive positions at some of the fastest, most disruptive technology companies in the world. What we discover is that John McMahon's vision has not only changed how we sell, it's changed what we sell. Welcome to Hunters and Unicorns. I'm Simon Kutis and I'm joined by my co-host Patrick Harrison. It's great to be here. And it's an absolute pleasure and honor to be joined today by Sung Park. Sung, welcome to the show. Simon, thank you. Patrick, hello. How are you?
0: Sung, thank you so much for joining us. Fantastic to have you on the show. Excellent. Looking forward to this.
1: <laughs> so, Sung, currently senior vice president of customer success and field engineering at ThoughtSpot. So, you've obviously had a remarkable, very, very successful career, and we're going to talk a lot about what you're doing at the moment at ThoughtSpot because I know it's quite an interesting project that um, that you're building. It's a very, very interesting mission. But what I want to do first, Song, is I want to start right from the beginning. Where did your passion for technology begin?
2: Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, it started, I think, out of uh, at a university, out of college. So I actually studied, uh, started out studying engineering, ended up switching over to economics, and it was right around the, uh, the ni- It was in the 90s. So it was right when the uh, World Wide Web and everything was starting to just kind of you know, start. Uh, and I remember sitting um, in our... Uh, uh, at, at Rutgers, I went to Rutgers University, um, sitting in the uh, computer science hall, uh, just tinkering around thinking, hey, this stuff is like pretty cool, right? Playing with Gopher and FTP and kind of the first versions of the, you know, web browsers like Mosaic and <laughs> ended up uh, just learning how to to script and, and program. So I learned Perl just because it seemed like kind of the cool thing to do. My first job actually was at uh, AT&T uh, WorldNet. Uh, dial-up service, if you remember what that is for everyone yeah. out there. It's these little modems <laughs> yeah. that you would dial up for the internet. <laughs> and um, ended up just uh, having, a, I think, a high degree of just curiosity, right, with just kind of technology, like how things work, and just this concept of this interconnected kind of mesh of computers and people, which, you know, obviously is far accelerated into what it is today. So ended up just, you know, kind of self-taught, obviously uh, learning how to uh, program a little bit. And that's what landed me my first real uh, tech job at uh, actually the Wall Street Journal, Dow Jones, uh, where um, I proudly built their first career site. So their job posting site on uh, (laughs) DowJones.com and WallStreetJournal.com using Perl and using just basically HTML. And then I I kind of uh, took a little bit of a foray into, um, you know, at the time, you know them today as full stack developers. But back in the day, you ended up learning how to code, you know, front end, HTML and Perl, you know, CGI bin, and then also trying to figure out, you know, kind of this database thing on the back end where you stored information. So that's where I first kind of got into um, database programming, learning SQL, learning, you know, Microsoft SQL Server, um, Sybase at the time. And that's really what kind of spurred me into uh, technology is Mm -hmm. kind of that love for um, all the cool things because they were just coming out so fast and furious. But more importantly, it just seemed like just the the in thing to do and, and kind of what was, uh, you know, where the world was headed. If that makes sense.
0: Sure. Yeah. You actually graduated in economics. Yes. Oh, so the uh, the convergence of technology and business was, was quite early then.
1: Yes, exactly. Did you have an idea of what you wanted your career to be or was it just that you were just enjoying the tech at the time or? it was all tech at the time. I had no clue, right? I mean, if anyone told me
2: at the time that you could do this job where it marries both technology and, and business, you get to talk to customers, you get to solve real world problems. Yeah. I would have said, Hey, like that kind of job doesn't exist you either. Uh, you know, I'm Korean, uh, Korean parents, uh, there are only two jobs I could have done, right. Either be a doctor or be a lawyer or be an engineer. Right. So There really were no other kind of paths for me in terms of, uh, you know, what my parents had kind of set expectations for, but, you know, just kind of luck. I think there's timing and luck with life. And obviously there was a lot happening on the technology side. And then I think there's a lot of bit of timing and luck with the people you meet and the network you build, right. In terms of getting you some opportunities, opening doors where, you know, you didn't know sometimes doors existed. So there was no planning or foresight in terms of hey, I want to get into tech because this is the wave. It just was kind of the cool thing, and it just happened to be uh, you know just by a force of events uh, you know transpiring that you just end up meeting people right throughout the career. Mm.
1: So obviously, Breakaway Solutions is um, is was were, were your roles with AT and T and Dow Jones through Breakaway Solutions?
2: No, so th- they were before. Uh, okay. breakaway solution. So from Dow Jones, I ended up working with a few gentlemen who ended up leaving Dow Jones to go, go to work at breakaway. So, yeah, to my okay. point. and they, they called me after a few months saying like, Hey, Sung, they're looking for someone to do some sysadmin work. We have this concept called application, you know, service provider. It's like a hosting company that runs applications and infrastructure uh, for customers. And I said, well, Hey, that sounds kind of interesting. Cause I can learn more. It sounds like it kind of paid well. And it was during this whole dot-com, you know, <laughs> yeah. bubble, right? That was kind of building. <laughs> and it was pretty cool because I, I live in, in New Jersey and um, it was a job in Manhattan in downtown. So that was another draw is to kind of be in, you know, working in the city, yeah. working in tech, working in Soho. And um, that's how I ended up going to, to uh, Breakaway Solutions.
1: So there, you would have been with. I imagine Tim Fessenden would have been there at the time. You would have had uh, Dave, was obviously at, at the helm at the time as well. He had quite a role there, and Vance and VJ was was also there. So that, that's that's really the nucleus of the whole Blade Logic business, right? It was, was pretty Blade Logic, exactly. So that's where um, I spent quite a bit
2: of time, uh, obviously working closely with them. Um, but then also experiencing the uh, joys and trials and tribulations of the dot-com bubble bursting, right? So, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I was uh, just so happy and through the roof because it was basically, a, you know, a paper millionaire, right? I got all these options. Stock was high flying at the time. I was like trying to do the math. This is amazing. and It's going to keep growing. And then by the time all was said and done, um, obviously, the stock uh, ended up, uh, unfortunately, kind of trading and being delisted. Ultimately, we went through rounds and rounds of layoffs after the whole dot-com bubble burst. Mm. But for what it's worth, it was probably the most um, rewarding time, too, just because of the connections you make. Having tried something and having, you know, obviously learned quite a bit, but also having kind of experienced a, quite a bit of the failure, too. Because no matter how hard you tried, there was just macro, um, you know, conditions, right, and macro forces that were uh, obviously not that friendly to kind of, you know, just tech. At the time but it was uh quite invigorating to be able to just meet people that um ended up you know me feeling like the stupidest person in the room right and it was (laughs) me kind of getting comfortable in that skin saying that hey i definitely don't know anything and just kind of uh take the mindset of being you know a bit of a sponge and just kind of absorbing and learning what you can from from everyone yeah yeah
1: Those guys went on to go and create Blade Logic, but you decided not to follow them. Was the option presented to you, or 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 did they not at the time? And well, at at the
2: time, I mean, so I lasted through. I want to say proudly through seven or eight rounds of layoffs. So, I mean, by the time we were uh, finally like, I decided to leave. You know, it it was the. you know, the fully stocked kitchen, you had the Aeron chairs, you had all the Mac equipment, everything. <laughs> and then all of a sudden the office was literally like a ghost town, right? You know, yeah. you had the tumbleweeds and like, where's the coffee? We had the Sega Genesis and the, the break room. And um, I'd I mentioned earlier, I was getting into uh, databases at the time. So I said, Hey, this DBA thing seems like it could be a pretty lucrative thing um pretty interesting and i think i just naturally gravitated toward a little bit more of kind of the safety net right having done now the dot com yeah. i said hey why don't i go to a little bit more of a traditional you know maybe corporate you know business and i ended up joining a uh, tiffany and company um the uh, running their e-commerce database systems so did that for a little bit of time and then um ended up uh going from there right after actually right after 911 uh, a few months after ended up joining a uh uh a bank, investment bank. Uh, it was a Japanese investment bank called Nomura Securities on, uh, you know, on Wall Street, actually in the World Financial Center, um, and did that for a few years. Um, and I got a phone call from actually a good friend of mine, Andrew Park, uh, who was at Blade Logic. Um, he was one of the, you know, uh, early starters, kind of co-founders for, uh, for for Blade Logic, and he kind of called me up saying, "Hey, Sung." And I remember this conversation because I took it in the office just, you know, chatting with him. He's like, "Hey, we're looking for, you know, these people." And I said, well, "What are you looking for?" He's like, "You know, people who have some like sysadmin skills. They need to know Linux or Windows. They need to be able to navigate around an operating system. And you know what? They just need to have like a good personality, people that, you know, people can like talk to." and are kind of smart and can learn things i said well i don't know anyone like that like like what are you looking for it's like it's a pre-sales engineer we're calling him application engineers and i was like i don't know anyone he's like well what about you i was like i don't know i'm really happy doing what i'm doing now Mm -hmm. and he said you know what just talk to a few people um he connected me with uh obviously i knew dave already uh but he connected me with uh with damon miller uh connected me with i think devoker at the time provoker Um, and then also a few others that were, uh, just kind of early on Mm. had the conversation and said, Hey, this actually sounds pretty interesting. Uh, again, because I felt the exposure would be, um, centered around me learning, picking up things. It was, uh, er early enough. I remember I was, um, I forget what number employee I was, I'm probably like 50 or 60, but I remember I was the 10th SE, right. Or the 10th application engineer. We call them AEs at the time. Yeah. But it would be in this new kind of pre-sales mode which I get to play with a little bit of or a lot of bit of technology kind of build the breadth and depth and become a domain expert and then also uh, work with customers uh, on kind of the business problems that they're looking to solve with this new thing which was just centered around automation and automation around the data center right and how sys and mins can actually you know leverage tooling to do their jobs faster, better, and to spend time on, you know, less time on the more mundane things that are becoming commodity and really focus on kind of the high value. So, it all sounded great and it was kind of a new thing and I, I met, you know, some sales leaders and some salespeople at the time. I remember Marty Carty taking me out to dinner a little bit of whining and dining, thinking like, "Hey, I could, I could totally get used to this, right?" Because we actually went to a fun fact, <laughs> a restaurant where I ended up getting married and having. Uh, well, we had our reception there, my wife and I, wow. at the Bernard's Inn in Burnsville. So, um, it it just seemed very enticing, right? Because you get to um, just get a, a a lot of exposure and get into, I think, uh, you know, uh, kind of the cutting edge of technology
0: at the time. Hmm. I think it's such an interesting point, and um, you know, hopefully, viewers watching this, maybe considering a move into, be it pre-sales or something more customer-facing. Um, did did you really, after that point, take to the pre-sales world really quickly, or did you ever have any doubts that you'd gone too far away from technology? The the first um,
2: twelve months, Patrick, were hell. Really? Hellful. Yeah, because it's it's. Uh, I mean, people nowadays talk about imposter syndrome. But for me, it's um, just the acute awareness of how little I knew and how much there was to learn, number one. And then um, kind of the imposter syndrome of meeting customers and realizing that, hey, they're asking me questions that I don't have all the answers to a lot of times. And how do I be credible, but also be authentic with them to understand their problem and help solve So it took me quite a bit of time to kind of get into that skin because, you know, there were some tactical things you need to learn Mm. to be a great SE. You need to be able to shut up and listen. So there's kind of this active listening exercise, because as you can tell, I I love to talk. Um, And then I think there was also this core skill around being able to storytell through a demo. Right. And whether you're presenting uh, whether you're doing a demonstration, or, or doing a product demo, or actually doing a, a, a proof of concept, or some type of validation, uh, you're weaving a story at the end of the day, right? And I think that was something that took me a little bit of time to really understand that there's an art and science to these things. Mm-hmm. But man, Patrick, the, the first twelve months were hell because I just felt like I was always failing, and obviously, you know that um, that sales team there, high, high expectations. Yeah. And um, actually, it was Devoker who said this, right? Hey, Sung, like one one piece of advice. I don't know if he said this when, when, when you spoke to him, but um, you're only as good as your last demo, <laughs> which is so true, right? Because, you know, no matter how good you are, the minute you screw something up, it's like, ah, well, Sung messed up that demo. So like, we're not going to close that deal. So you yeah. you kind of feel the, you know, the intense like pressure and the burden to always be at your your best and to bring your A game. And I think that was one thing that it took me quite a bit of time, just personally, I don't think hopefully externally, I kind of showed that, but it, it really took me some time to kind of figure out, hey, these are the skills I need to build. Yeah. I now have some fair degree of self-confidence in terms of the expertise, right? And having built those skills. And I think the, you know, uh, the mindset there was um, always making sure that you're um, staying abreast and kind of iterating, right? Learning, learning and making sure you're absorbing. Otherwise it was kind of the fear of um, also being, um, you know, kind of b- becoming antiquated, right? If you don't know the next cool thing that either we're building or that customers are going to care about, I think that was really just that fix, you know, fixation almost.
0: Yeah. And making sure that you, you know, really stayed, stayed on top of that. Mm. And Blade log- logic touched on so many different points of, an enterprise customer's infrastructure, right? It was,
2: yeah. I mean, because it, it was, it was really cool because you ended up selling to obviously IT, but you also ended up selling to the business. Someone had to sign the check, mm-hmm. so it, it was a really good way to cut teeth around obviously dealing and building, you know, technical champions, right? The the people who are going to be influencers, sometimes decision makers around the tech itself. But then also making sure that you're able to articulate the business pain and the business value because at the end of the day that's what you're selling right you have to identify the pain yeah. prove that there's pain there uh, you know validate it show it to the the prospect right or to the customer and then say here's how we'll help you solve it and and you know prove that out and if you take that into account it was um, really great of a proving ground for any pre-sales i think engineer or consultant. To understand selling high and selling to the business, but also selling um, wide, uh, you know, throughout the the, the account, uh, but also through to other, um, I guess, all the persona, right? Persona that you have to deal with, right? So it it was it was it was great just to kind of cut your teeth and obviously met a, a ton of great people there, both in in uh, the sales world and also in the pre-sales world, as you know.
1: How important do you think the pre-sales organization was in the overall success of Blade Logic? Wow, I would say absolutely, probably the most important thing.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because it, well, think about it, and and I, I hope most of the sales leaders will agree because um, it's really where the rubber meets the road, right? If you think about um, how to bridge that business and technology gap, so that you can really, you know, identify the pain prove it out, but prove it in a way that is well um, differentiated as well as well quantified, devils in the details, right? And I think this is where um, we really ended up earning our, our, uh, our paychecks is being able to execute super well on that whole kind of spectrum of things that happen in the initial onset of meeting a prospect understanding that pain through great discovery and then executing as well as you can through you know building champions really really focusing in on that pain and then also quantifying like how we can actually help because you have to justify some amount of spend and kind of prove out that hey we can save your you know uh, your time instead of having to patch and upgrade these servers um, spending hours a week times you know 50 50 weeks that you're working you know because I'm counting the two weeks of vacation. What number does that actually mean in terms of actual, you know, uh, FTE time as well as dollars? So um, long-winded way of saying, I think, you know, every great sales organization has uh, an even greater pre-sales organization right there with them, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think uh, it truly is one of the the most unique roles where you have that uh, perfect marriage of business and technology. And it's, it's really, uh, like, like I said before, you're only as good as your last demo or you're only as good as your last POC. So you have to maintain kind of that high bar of um, execution excellence. So, um, if if they had a crappy pre-sales team at Blade <laughs> Logic, I guarantee it probably w- would not have been as uh, um, as fun of a ride or as quick of a ride to kind of the outcomes that happened there.
0: And so. and what enabled the building of such a great pre-sales organization, in your opinion?
2: uh, probably a few key factors, right? We had, um, obviously, uh, I mean, the biggest change was when we changed, um, sales leaders, I'll say. So I'll talk about sales first. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously when John McMahon kind of came on board and came to the helm, uh, it it was a totally different sales world, right? I mean, no disrespect to obviously the, the prior uh, sales regime, because, you know, it got us there, but you know, what got us there wasn't going to get us to, I think where we were trying to head. Mm -hmm. And I think with, um, John, he instilled kind of this almost, um, strong sense of belief that, you know, it, it's a team. We're taking a hill together sales and pre-sales, right? It wasn't anything like, Oh, Hey, we're just kind of a tool in a toolkit. Just, you know, bring out the SE uh, when they, uh, when they're needed, do the demo and then kind of tuck them back in the closet and they'll, you know, do their little propeller head things. I know that, you know, it was kind of the, um, the joke, but it was truly kind of a galvanizing thing to really understand how important we were viewed by sales Mm -hmm. in selling. So I think that belief number one was important. I think we had some fantastic leaders, right? So if you think about like Damon and uh, Damon Miller, and if you think about Tim Fessenden, if you think about DeVocker, they all instilled, I think their own kind of flavor of, you know, what was needed to be a successful, um, you know, SE. And it came down to, I think things that I still employ in my my playbook, right? It's like how you recruit, um, it's how you train and what you do to ultimately um, kind of set the expectation of the role because I truly believe you can't do a role or a job well unless you know exactly what the job is, right? So you have to be super clear as far as, hey, you need to kick ass with your presentations, right? You need to kick ass with your demos and you need to execute your POCs flawlessly. If you just do those three things well, then usually you, know, you end up with some pretty damn good results, but you also get, um, I think, a really good way to kind of, you know, I don't want to say um, filter out anything, but you, the, the SEs who end up doing those things well kind of rise to the top, let's put it that way, right? Because that really helped us, I think, um, scale the, the pre-sales organization, but also uh, uh, I think rise to the occasion as far as how fast we're growing on the sales side as well. And the last thing I'll say is um, I think uh, with any piece of software, enterprise software, it had its warts, right? (laughs) It was not perfect. And I think any SE worth their uh, weight in gold basically earns it by um, knowing where the, you know, the skeletons are, where some of the pitfalls are, Mm. knowing how to avoid them, position around them, but more importantly, focus on the things that made us different than our main competitor at the time, which was, uh, you know, Opsware, right? So it was kind of a, a great way to have, you know, so think about this dynamic. You had John galvanizing the sales team, right? And really setting forward with some discipline, some accountability, a methodology that works, how to qualify the hell out of deals, making sure pre-sales were involved. So like you felt like a team, mm. you had a mission, right? Because, hey, we wanted to be obviously a, you know, damn big company, but also we had um, a competitor, right? With Opsware. So we had an enemy that helped us galvanizing even further and really helped us focus in on, I think the... The mission or the task at hand. And then you had, a, honestly, a bunch of great, smart group of people on, on the pre-sales side that just figured it out along the way, because there was no playbook at the time. And we just kind of figured out the things that mattered and distilled it down to that, because we honestly had no time or bandwidth to kind of
0: waste mm. in reality. That's an interesting point. So there was a playbook for the sales side, but the playbook wasn't really defined on the pre sale side at that point.
2: A playbook meaning, you know, um, it, John came in with his playbook. Like, you know what John's about because he honed that over the craft of, you know, several companies. Yeah. I'm saying on the on the pre sale side, we did have to figure out a few things that align to what sales was doing. I, I think that's really uh, what yeah. I mean more than anything, because if you think about like what I've learned and employed, it's probably not too far off from what you know. I learned from John and from like Carlos De La Torre and and from you know some of the great sales leaders I've worked with. You know mm-hmm. Scott Davis, like they um, are all kind of disciples of you know how to sell and how to run sales organizations. Mm-hmm. And for me, we had to just make sure we adapted and complemented that, right? Because the rate in which we grow and expand and drive, you know, kind of the the, the sales uh, organization, you have to keep up and sometimes be a little bit of a head. Because, you know, any great SE organization is able to help enable and kind of get, you know, reps productive as well, right? They have usually a pretty big part in that, especially when it's a very deep, heavy technical product. So I didn't mean to say like, hey, we had no playbook, but it was really just adapting what we already kind of had around like some uh, learnings and some hypotheses and really making sure that it was uh, very complementary to what sales was doing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's really interesting. And I guess on the, the pre-sales side, it, the playbook kind of alters a little bit more company to company based oh, on the differences in tech, right? Absolutely, right? Because I think uh, as tech has progressed, even in the last
2: you know, decade, um, mm-hmm. you know, well, so like MongoDB, for example, like open source, like what does that mean? And then I think even with the role I'm at now, which I'm sure we'll talk about, it's uh, mm-hmm. I think evolved even further with the advent of cloud, with SaaS, with how we think about, you know, when we uh, look at customers in the customer journey, because think about it, we held the keys to the kingdom back then to software. You had to interface with us in order to even get, get hands on keyboard, right. Mm -hmm. To look at the software versus now you can almost, you have the free trials, you have open source, you have, you know, SaaS, where you don't even need to talk to anyone if you really didn't want to and kind of get a product experience, right. So I think that there's a lot of nuance around that for sure. But you know, Mm -hmm. to my point blade logic was such an awesome proving ground Mm -hmm. it was a great place to cut you know cut your teeth because it was also where i went from an individual contributor to a manager Mm -hmm. uh obviously you know it's um just a time that i look back with a lot of uh you know fondness just because of the again the connections i've made but also the fact that we kind of pulled it you know we pulled it out right as far as having a a great outcome with an ipo Mm -hmm. and then an acquisition right with uh, kind of the bigger companies
0: so um yeah. yeah, amazing. And um, just to take it back slightly, Sung. So, so obviously a difficult first twelve months, um, and then as you mentioned, obviously you, you developed, you moved into management. What what were the kind of key things that that really triggered for you to to take that step into presumably ex- excelling at pre sales and then into leadership?
2: Uh, I remember this conversation. I was actually in my car driving over the Tappansee Bridge. Uh, going, um, I was obviously going north. I forget if I was going to upstate New York somewhere, or if I was going to maybe uh, Connecticut, I forget exactly where I was going, mm. but I remember the conversation in the car because uh, Carlos, Carlos Delatorre, and Carlos was, I, I know on, uh, on the series before called me up saying like, Hey, so um, what do you think about uh, being a manager? I said, hey, man, I really enjoy what I'm doing. And remember that imposter syndrome thing from before? Yeah, yeah. I was like, I've never managed before. Why would you even like want to look at me? I don't want to like, you know, F things up. <laughs> and he kind of talked me through it and convinced me saying, hey, like, it'd be great for you to um, take the opportunity, um, lead the team, because obviously you're, you know, and he said it, I don't know if he, I think he meant it, like, hey, you're doing really well. Everyone kind of looks up to you. Mm. And it'd be great for you to be able to kind of, um, help us in terms of how we're expanding and growing uh the pre-sales organization as well as you know the expansion in sales Mm -hmm. so i remember uh you know coming home uh talking to my wife jen and just saying like hey what do you think she's like absolutely absolutely i mean i'll (laughs) I'll save that and she's like you have to take it like this is a great opportunity for you so uh said yes yeah let's do it right and um i think it was uh not by me, force of nature wanting to get into leadership and management. it was actually Carlos and I owe him so much to just kind of him thinking highly enough of me at the time and having you know enough confidence to say that. so um, that that was my first step into it in, into management at, at Blade Logic. and it was a small team, and obviously I knew everyone too, right because we work side by side, and the transition ended up probably being much easier than I thought for what it's worth. Hmm.
1: Sure. Yeah. So, the thirty-three CXOs were hired against the ice criteria. It's obviously well documented the criteria that they were using. John was was using to hire and identify high potential sales guys with the right attitude, the right attributes. What was the criteria for pre-sales? Uh, not not too
2: dissimilar, right? So we're looking for um, obviously technical aptitude. Like that was the baseline watermark. You have to have some demonstrated depth and breadth in technology does it have to be relevant tech or could it be uh usually for blade logic it did because we were obviously selling to um a particular profile and we were Mm. very much focused on a a wide breadth of operating systems at the time so whether it was like hp ux or aix or linux or windows we were looking for some degree of hands-on depth um we were definitely looking for uh a high index of learning as well. So uh, when I mentioned just the curiosity, there's the intellectual curiosity, the technical curiosity, always asking questions, wanting to learn more. Um, I didn't know it at the time, but it was kind of this whole growth mindset. How do you go and kind of challenge yourself and how do I just continuously find ways to you know learn and improve? So we were looking for technical aptitude and have that be demonstrated and well-defined. Um, I was also looking for kind of the high index around learning and I was also looking for, honestly, you know, we call it kind of the X factor, um, but the X factor comes in the form of just that passion and kind of that drive. And, uh, you know, we call it drive and grit today, mm-hmm. but it was just, you know, someone with high horsepower and the ability to, um, have that, I think demonstrated work ethic. And, uh, you know, the thing we stole from, from sales was, uh, coachability, right. John McMahon always talk, talks about, you know, how coachable, uh, is, is, is the candidate, is the individual, is the team member. And obviously that has a lot of uh, connection and correlation to, um, I think the uh, uh, ability to um, have that kind of growth mindset because you wanna always be constantly taking in feedback and finding ways to improve. And I think it's, um, it's a really, really good trait that um, I think, honestly, whether you're in pre-sales or not, is just good for kind of a, a, a lifetime right? From a career perspective, regardless of the role, right? Is uh, just having that like openness to coachability. Because honestly, you have to remove some of the emotion and the defensiveness as humans we have. It's like, well, hey, you, you just said my demo sucked. Like, Well, screw you, right? I thought mm-hmm. my demo was fine. But hey, here are the things you could have done to make it that much better, mm-hmm. right? A sim- simple example. But I think the, those were the things we looked at, right? Is technical aptitude and the depth, right? Because you have to have it. Like that's kind of a given. We we're looking at obviously, you know, how much of that intellectual curiosity they had. We we're looking for that drive, right? X factor grit, um, that ability to just kind of go and go and then coachability, right? If if we find that kind of perfect mix, uh, we ended up, um, you know, having some, some just great hires and people who've been super successful. And mm. I t- tell you stories about a few of them too. <laughs> I, I think you spoke to one of them already, actually.
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely so I, I suppose in terms of you know that environment why do you think some some of the pre-sales guys were able to elevate and kind of grow with it and some perhaps didn't have the success that that maybe some others did What what do you think was the was the what was the the difference
2: yeah i mean so assuming all the other things i just said are the same right that we all came in with that kind of level playing field Then I do think the thing that ended up making a a little bit of a difference if um, you look at it is how much you ended up really understanding and aligning to sales, especially sales leadership, right? Because there's one thing to build credibility with the uh, the reps, right? Because they'll just naturally kind of bring you into every deal, right? Mm -hmm. Saying like, hey, you know, um, Mike or Sahir or John, come, right? Because I I need you, important meeting, I need you to like go crush this meeting. Mm Um, so you build that kind of confidence and credibility, but I think, um, aligning to what the sales leaders were trying to do and understanding like their goals. I know it sounds like such a simple thing, but kind of endearing yourself to the things that matter to them, I think really helped with the, uh, career progression for a lot of the SEs, right? That, those are the, I think SEs that were kind of earmarked, like to my example around Carlos, Hey, I, I did everything I could to support him, you know, uh, hand over fist, anything, um, same with Dan Fougere, right? Who are kind of my my, my core team over in, uh, in the East. And I think that's part of why he probably called me to say like, hey, I trust you. I have confidence in you. Um, are you ready for the next step? So I, I feel like there's that kind of angle from a uh, career progression perspective to kind of be viewed as like leadership management potential. I think the other side of it too was, hey, you got to be good at your craft. And you got to be like really good at just being, you know, you hear about audible readiness and, you know, handling the curveballs and handling the objections. And those are the things that you just don't, um, you can't teach completely. You have to have some of that innate kind of ability to have that situational fluency and you build that credibility. Cause look at the reps, right? The reps that were there at blade logic are now CROs and presidents now at companies today. So I think it's just really making sure that you, um, executed well, and you were able to uh, intuitively understand what the reps were trying to do and just be there as their partner in crime. I, I think that's really what um, kind of set it apart because there were some SEs that were, hey, day job, been doing it, you know, as career SEs already. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were great, like B pluses, right? A minuses, mm-hmm. but they weren't necessarily going that extra mile. So like really, I think, uh, make sure that they did everything they could to get that, you know, well-executed meeting so that that opportunity converts into an actual deal, and to really you know have kind of the the rep and the sales leader's best interests in mind. I don't know if that re- that resonates. No, it does absolutely.
1: Expensive. Do you think that's a mindset thing? Do you think that gap is a mindset thing, or do you think it's a a capacity hmm. thing? Um, I do think it's a
2: it's probably a little bit of uh, a both, Simon. Right, because you have to be smart enough and aware enough to know that hey, this is. Um, how you operate as a team and how you best collaborate. And I think the second piece is, you know, th- there probably is quite a bit of, um, I guess, uh, learning that has to happen on the job. So if you're smart enough, you kind of pick up on these things, right? And I had no clue Carlos was going to be doing what he's doing now, right? At the time, I just thought, hey, he's a smart guy, knows what he's doing. He's he's hard, knows, and he he expects a lot. Um, but he knows how to sell. so I'm gonna like do everything I can to make sure he's successful and and, you know support that. So it wasn't even like I was again thinking about getting in good good graces with like Carlos or Dan or others. It was more about, hey, um I see them um, as kind of uh, excellent in their craft. and i I just want to be kind of a part of that if that makes sense. So it just kind of naturally happened for me. Um, but but again, I can't speak for others. I'm sure there are others that are probably a little more, Professionally minded and have more thoughtfulness around kind of their sure. career, if that makes sense.
1: So, so I suppose as a, as standards for pre sales and sales globally, as 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 we see them today, obviously Blade Logic, it's well documented how high performing that sales and pre sales harmony was. But how significant do you think it is in actually maybe laying some foundation of what is regarded as p- best practice in in the kind of technology sales world that we live in today? Oh my God! If you look at just the the sales process and the methodology and and the
2: you know medic or med pick around it as far as qualification, like I think that's definitely the groundwork for how like what the pre sales uh, part is in all of those things, right? So if you think about a well-documented, well documented, well executed sales process and methodology, SE has quite a few big parts in it, right? If you think about how well they do discovery, how well they scope. More importantly, how well they're actually executing on the validation, right? The proof of concept, Mm -hmm. like those three things without executing those with excellence and with almost perfection, deals won't close. I I think we all know that. So Mm -hmm. um, that's a tried and true uh, methodology and process that I think is employed by probably a wide swath of technology and, and software companies today. So I do think that, you know, for me, if you see where, um, again, where the sales leaders dispersed and the sales team and, you know, sales reps dispersed, and then where the pre-sales teams went, I think there's a lot of that played logic kind of roots um, that you see in kind of a a really broad set of companies today across the board. So absolutely, for sure, I think there is a lot of goodness there. That really is the uh, foundation for um, what you're seeing in terms of execution excellence with, you know, Pre sales in many, many companies.
0: Hmm. That's really interesting. Um, so, 2007, Played Logic scaled towards the IPO, right? It must have been a very exciting Yeah, I think we actually uh, IPO
2: 2008, if I remember correctly, right. um, because we were actually doing a massive POC uh, with uh, Bank of America. It was, I remember this one, it was um, six proof of concepts in parallel. So, right. it was like unheard of. That we would do six. We had, uh, honestly, the entire SE team in one of these six locations, all distributed, working on different parts of, you know, the requirements. Um, I, in particular, had one where I was working with the uh, the database team, uh, the Oracle team at, at Bank of America, and automating their Oracle builds. Yeah. Uh, we were in Manhattan at the time, uh, you know, in Midtown. And I remember uh, myself and a few others, we ended up uh, doing, it, uh, we were joking, it was a little bit of a drive-by IPO, if I remember correctly, because we had the IPO, we were there at, at the NASDAQ, I think it was NASDAQ, you know, got the pictures, saw the things and everything. And then we had to actually hop on a plane and go <laughs> for the next day for the, you know, the POC. Um, wow. And um, <laughs>
0: man,
2: was it, uh, I think it was North Carolina, I think. But it was, uh, it, was, it was amazing, right? Because like it was so, um, such a great highlight from a professional perspective, but then you never, uh, you were reminded of the fact that you still had a job to do, right? Because we were doing this POC that had to execute well. Yeah. So um, it, that was 2008, if I remember correctly, because I, I think I have a shirt somewhere with 2008 IPO for Blade Logic on there, yeah.
0: Yeah, fantastic. And then obviously shortly after the, the BMC acquisition, um obviously a huge transition how 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 did that feel at that point uh
2: remember those first 12 months at at blade logic it it, it was like that but worse only because we felt like hey i mean in a different way though because we were a small company we were only a few hundred people now being you know acquired by this you know much bigger company was a few thousand i think it was like six thousand at the time yeah and our first um obviously we were happy about the acquisition because it was a a pretty cool outcome because Opsware had just been picked up already as well, I I think. And um, we uh, ended up having the first experience in, uh, it was Nashville for sales kickoff. Mm -hmm. So we were just kind of a little small group of people trying to like stay together. We had, I remember sitting in some big uh, meeting room uh, with the BMC team, kind of walking through details of what the acquisition meant what you can expect. Here's like, you know, what kind of stock you get. And here's like the roles and here's some HR people and everything. Mm-hmm. But we ended up being a team of, oh, man, I want to say 40, maybe 50 SEs being swallowed up by, I think it was maybe a few hundred, you know, being part of a much larger organization. Mm-hmm. And honestly, like people weren't that friendly, man. It was like, you know, you had kind of the, you know, um, uh, a few of them, and I, I'm not going to name names, but one of them, they kind of say like, Hey, what do you know? Kind of thing. It's like, you've been doing this for a few years. You come from a little rinky dink, you know, company that we just bought. Yeah. So like, Hey, this is, this is how the big boys play in enterprise software. So it was kind of that, you know, a little bit of that mentality, but I will say this, it took a, you know, when I say 12 months, um, little did these people know it was a reverse takeover. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, you know, by the time all was said and done, like, guess who was on top? It was obviously John and sales leadership. And remember, I was I was running the East at the time mm-hmm. uh, for, uh, for Blade Logic, and they ended up, you know, figuring out ways to just uh, incorporate all the Blade Logic leadership um, in pre-sales with the other BMC leadership. So you had kind of these like weird um, two managers in one area or one region situation. So you knew eventually this was all going to consolidate and there was gonna be a little bit of a bake off. Yeah. That's what I mean, Patrick, when it was, you know, 12 months of just like you know, difficulty because it's like, hey, uh, part of me was like I'm competing against other pre-sales leaders who've been doing this a while and and you know, obviously are, are expert. And then you've got this upstart group of like really smart, hungry SEs who were just like, you know, kind of scrapping right? In a way. So I think that that mindset
0: was definitely there, but obviously we know how that turned out. Just saying. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And um, for our viewers maybe going, who've recently been through an acquisition, who have only maybe just um, been in pre-sales roles selling point solutions before, um, moving to to an organization with such a wide portfolio, how how did that Help you or, or challenge you? Was it a positive overall? Um, I think
2: there were uh, every product at BMC had an acronym. Hmm. <laughs> so it was number one, learning all the acronyms. Uh, <laughs> to your point, there were pillars, right? There was obviously, you know, the help desk, like, uh, you know, uh, change management, ITSM, uh, solutions. We were part of like now the automation. They had uh, acquired a company called Marimba at the time for desktop automation. And we were kind of filling out the portfolio on the server side and the data center side. Mm-hmm. And then you had kind of this, uh, you know, predictive, you know, monitoring um, as well as, uh, you know, the service assurance business line that they called it. So it it was great, right, just to get a little bit well grounded in, again, enterprise software selling. Because remember, we were one product, even though it wasn't a point like app or a solution, Mm -hmm. it was still a complex sale. It became even more complex now being able to um, honestly sell even higher and understand the dynamics there, right? Because we talked about how to fill in the white space, when a company has like everything in kind of the business service management, it was BSM uh, portfolio that BMC was selling. Well, here's now how Blade logic fits in, into kind of the broader portfolio. But hey, we were, we felt like mercenaries in a way, right? Because we were like the specialists that would help with the blade logic piece. So at that point in time, as a manager, I, I remember spending quite a bit of time trying to learn the portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um, but to answer your question, there was definitely a lot of learning in terms of um, reframing the conversation, right? With customers, right? Um, because now you're talking about a portfolio, And then also really understanding how we fit but also how much of our remember I mentioned process and methodology that we had kind of been just ingrained like this is how we do it a lot of that ended up um, I think being very useful to um, kind of marry that methodology and rigor and discipline in terms of how we sell and and um, how we qualify right as as pre-sales professionals to um, kind of a broader portfolio, if that makes sense, right? Because there was a lot of um, opportunity there for us to obviously do things better. And I think that was really one of the the key factors in obviously BMC's success, right, is you, you had the reverse takeover with John mm. um, taking over sales. So already instantly there was this um, change in sales discipline and accountability and methodology and process. And we were able to take a pretty big portfolio of products and do the same. Um, well, you know, I happen to have a great leader as well. I mean, obviously Vance was there, Tim was there, um, but I ended up uh, working for a gentleman by the name of Andy Harwood
1: mm-hmm. for quite
2: some time. Um, he's uh, often, you know, kind of enjoying, you know, kind of greener pastures right now. I know he's been doing a lot of like hiking and walking and um, is, you know, not having to work great for him. Uh, but I learned so much from him as well, right? Just in terms of he wasn't blade logic. But I think what he was able to do, remember I said he was able to, you know, the people that rise to the top adapt. Mm-hmm. He was a longtime BMC uh, pre-sales uh, software consultant, uh, was in leadership, and he just instantly adapted to what everything, you know, obviously uh, John was doing. Mm-hmm. And he, he ran worldwide pre-sales, right? And I think that's why he was so successful um, running that, that pre-sales organization for as long as he did. You know, mm. before before he left.
0: Wow! So he, even though he was legacy, he was able to instantly adapt to the, those methodologies. To
2: it took a bit of time, that. yeah. But I mean, I think he was, uh, you know, he understood and he got it right. And if I remember anything, it's explain, demo, proof. That that's what he instilled in the pre-sales organization, right? Yeah. You know, these are the pillars. This is the expertise. And he he's Welsh, so you know, I, I'm I'm not gonna butcher the way he says it, you know, guys, but he uh, <laughs> would always say, explain demo proof. So it was simple enough for us to galvanize around, but simple enough to, um, have us basically have the clear, again, understanding of what it is we needed to do in pre-sales. Mm-hmm. And then he would also, um, you know, he had other three things, right? So he, it was always around recruit, um, reward and, uh, retain, right? Mm -hmm. As far as leadership, right? Make sure you're always recruiting that that state as part of my playbook, making Mm -hmm. sure that you're recognizing and rewarding, right? And as far as like how you're um, building our careers, uh, building our career paths, making sure that you, you know, recognize for for great, you know, uh, performance, building a meritocracy. So all those things he instilled, and, you know, he might be someone interesting to talk to as well, because he's just, just a great guy. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, to my point, he really did well to kind of adapt, to the sales methodology and process and everything that was happening mm-hmm. and also he just ended up picking some great leaders to kind of run the teams for him as well just saying
1: <laughs> did you see a shift in momentum so at first there might have been a bit of resistance what from both sides i suppose you perhaps resisted them they resisted you did did, did you see that kind of shift of momentum absolutely i mean <laughs> I, I i don't know uh if uh
2: any of the sales leaders from Blade Logic, you know, <laughs> really brought this up. But there was so much of this going on. Some, some was very blatant, and some was not so. You know, a little more passive, uh, passive aggressive, I should say. Um, it, it still manifested quite a bit, I think, in even the pre-sales organization. Because again, remember the kind of the general mindset, right? And the general environment we stepped into is like, you know, we acquired you, little Blade Logic team. Like it wasn't anything, you know, more than that. And again, it wasn't nefarious or malicious. I think it was just kind of the mindset. Honestly, if I were BMC longtime, you know, SE, SE leader, I probably would have just had that same mentality. No one would have, I think, expected that. But it did manifest itself that way. And it, it all played out, especially if you look at who ended up running EMEA uh, for sales and for pre-sales, who ended up running, obviously, you know, the Americas, um, all the sales leaders from Blade Logic ended up, you know, for the most part, right, it was Adam... I think, you know, obviously Carlos and others that ended up kind of taking critical roles where you had two leaders, the BMC leader and the blade logic leader. So that didn't happen overnight. That took a bit of time. So there was a little bit of like conflict and some contention, but yeah. Hey, like it was expected. Right. Cause I don't think there's any simple way to do it. Right. Someone's going to be unhappy. Um, and I think that was definitely the the situation over the course of the, whatever the first 12 months there.
1: Yeah. So, one of your playbook elements is always be recruiting. So, at BMC, you, you you can see clear progression over your seven years. You started as a manager of the Northeast, made your way to director, AVP, uh, um, VP of Worldwide Worldwide Sales Specialization, <laughs> oh, I about that. and then <laughs> VP of Worldwide Pre Sales and Technical Account Management. So, there's clear progression. At what point were you able to start implementing playbook elements like always be recruiting?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I obviously learned that from, um, from Blade Logic. I don't think I really knew it at the time because mm. it was always, uh, you know, the rule of three, right? And, and it's actually something John had said. So, if you take that, um, he, here's the interesting story behind this, right? So, I was the Northeast uh, manager. And, um, they were looking for a, uh, an America's director for pre-sale. So the uh, gentleman that was running at Jeff Hodges, um, at the time said, Hey, you know, I've kind of run my course and, um, he was kind of stepping down. So it was, you know, kind of a, a known thing. Um, Andy Harwood and Vance were actually interviewing for a, uh, director for, uh, America's, um, I remember this too, because we were in Vegas at a kickoff. And uh, if you were interested, you had to set up some time with Andy to talk to him because he was obviously the hiring manager. And I remember I was in a room of 20, 20 some odd, you know, pre-sales leaders and remember uh, just that imposter syndrome again, right? I think that's kind of the common theme here looking around the room. Hey, you've got all these like BMC people that have been here for a while, um, They'll probably just get the job. And look, it's Andy. So he's a BMC guy. So he's going to just pick someone. And everyone ended up talking to Andy. I remember sitting back during the QBR and and kind of the kickoff session thinking like, yeah, I'm I'm not even going to try because like, why would he even consider me? And like, do I really want this thing? And I remember um, Andy pulled me aside towards the end. We were just done with the QBR and kind of wrapped up. And he's like, hey, son, just want want to chat with you for a little bit. I don't know if he remembers this. We were pulled out in kind of the meeting area. Everyone, all the other leaders were kind of spilling out. And he was just saying like, hey, you know, just heard a lot of great things about you. Just curious why you, you know, didn't put your your name in for this. I was like, and I kind of told him, I was like, hey, I don't don't know if I'm like fully ready or not. And uh, it feels like there might be other better qualified candidates. But hey, um, I'd love to just get to know you better, Andy. And we just chatted for a little bit. Uh, And then I remember thinking after my plane ride back home, (laughs) driving from the airport to my house, thinking what a stupid ass I am. Like, why didn't I just put my name in just for at least a visibility, but also just to go through the process with Andy, who's like going to be potentially my boss's boss. Mm -hmm. And he seemed like such a great guy. So I remember calling Vance saying like, Vance, I think I like effed up. Like I I actually didn't put my name in the hat for this with Andy and I, I really don't know if like it's too late, but I'd love to get my name in, in, into the, the the mix. He's like, hey, some, hold on. I'm actually talking to Andy right now. So he puts me on hold <laughs> and then he, he switches over and then he, I guess, talks to Andy and he comes back and says, hey, Andy's going to talk to you. So reach out to him. <laughs> and that's all she wrote, right? Because it ended up being working out, obviously I got the gig, but it was um, great to be able to, again, just uh, get out of my comfort zone Yeah. And also realize how much of a stupid ass I was. I actually give my wife credit for that because she's the one who said like, you're you're a dumbass. Why didn't you like just go through with it and like talk to him? And, um, I remember the whole interview process being, uh, being great because it was with the sales leadership too, right? Jim, it was Jim drill who was running Americas (laughs) at the time. And, you know, we had all the blade logic sales leaders. So I remember, um, uh, I don't know if Andy knows this, I don't know if I ever told him, Carlos again called me because they had this big powwow in Houston, they had this QBR, they had the planning, everyone had gone through all the interviews. And he called me up excitedly saying like, hey some, you got the gig, I'm not supposed to tell you, but you know, congratulations, <laughs> I'm really looking forward to this, everyone's like really excited. And then I hung up thinking like, yes, because I remember I was, I was uh, in my basement at the time, uh, you know, just through the roof, just excited. And then Andy called me a few a few minutes later, saying like, "Hey, Sung, you know, congratulations!" And so I had to pretend a little bit, like, "Oh my God, thank you so much." <laughs> but it, it was amazing too because the one thing that I absolutely remember too is my conversation with Frank Lamprea because he was competing for it as well, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, we were friends. Um, we had obviously worked together, you know, some, somewhat um, closely at at um, at Blade Logic, but that that was actually the catalyst for me because we had what ended up being a very adult conversation saying like, Hey, you know, I know you didn't get it. I know I got it, but vice versa. He was there saying like, Hey, I will support you in any, which way I can like, Hey, we're like big boys here. Really happy. You got it. And that meant so much to me just on a personal level. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you know, you've spoken to Frank, he's just absolutely amazing. Right. Just a great guy Mm -hmm. and just so proficient and just a master of his craft. And I remember thinking like, Hey, this is probably not going to be so bad right? Because again, there was a little bit of like the happiness and then the fear of like, Hey, I've got this like big role now with, I forget it was like a hundred something SEs and like 15 mm-hmm. managers, a lot of them more experienced than me. And now I've got this job. So I've got to roll up my sleeves and figure out how I'm going to do this thing. So um, I know I'm talking a lot, but this is, I mean, it, it was a really exciting, like pivotal moment for me at BMC to be able to kind of get the the big role. And then I think that's really where I figured out, Hey, People are going to quit on you. We're going to have to promote a few people. They're going to surprise you. So like start recruiting, build out that pipeline. Mm. And I really learned that from, I think, you know, things that John talks about with like reps always, always recruit, right? Cause like reps are going to turn and you're, you're going to see that mm. and just kind of applied that right. In, in kind of my, my leadership role there. And Andy was obviously, you know, I said like recruit, retain reward, right? Like that's what you do as a leader.
0: That's mm. your job is to recruit. Mm. So, so even if there's o- not an open role, you are on the lookout for talent. Always pipeline, right? Mm. Because,
2: you know, just, you, you don't start looking when you get an open role, that, that's the worst thing you can do, mm. right? Because then you, you spend three months trying to find someone yeah. versus you build the network, you build the connections, even though, you know, the people that you want ultimately are not in play players, right? Mm. They're already gainfully employed and happy somewhere, but you wait for those opportunities. And then, you know, and you remember, you remember, Hey, um, I've got this opportunity now. Remember, we talked about it. Timing's here if you're interested. And you, you have a pipeline of candidates, right? Because you need four, five, you know, 10, that at any moment you can basically, as a leader, um, be there to potentially hire. So learn that lesson very quickly. Otherwise, you um, end up losing quite a bit of time. And like I said, we never had that luxury, right? Like it was painful when we couldn't hire fast enough yeah. and we couldn't hire good people well enough, right? It, it was um, kind of a double edged sword there because um, you can't. You, I learned the lesson very early, just don't fill, you know, b- put butts in seats. It's yeah. like the pain and the cost of making a bad hire ends up hurting you more than you know, the little bit of uh, relief that you get from just having a open headcount that you need to fill. Mm. Yeah. So recruiting is one of the most important things by far
0: mm. for any leader. Yeah. Think that's fascinating insight. Um, that, that role and that promotion at BMC. So, you took on um, the, the whole America's region uh, around 100 se's, as you mentioned. W- was that a real moment where you felt you moved away from the technology uh, from a hands on perspective, from an understanding perspective?
2: Sadly, yes. I mean, obviously, I kept my chops pretty, pretty good on, on the Blade Logic technology, but I think that's when I really started realizing that the, the art and the science of, you know, leading a team and managing managers, like, again, those first 12, wow, first 12, 18 months were a lot of learning for myself. And I think that's when I did end up realizing that I couldn't spend as much time on the tech, right? Um, And that there was actually, I don't want to say little value, you still need to know your tech, but I wasn't going to be hands on keyboard running a POC, right? I I actually was now responsible for making sure that, you know, the 15 POCs that happened in any given month executed well, right? So figuring that out, but to uh, you know, honestly, call bullshit when you see bullshit too with the team. Mm-hmm. That's important, right? So you can't be too far removed. <laughs> but like the better way to phrase it is the focus ended up being not on the hands-on tech in terms of how I, I was measured, right, for success in the role. Let's put it that way. But I obviously still needed to maintain the the tech as much as I could. But yeah, if I look back on the career, that's definitely one area where or, or one time where I can see me moving away more from, you know, obviously the more traditional kind of very deep technical pre-sales
1: responsibility. So what did you do to upskill or, or to kind of acquire the, the new skills that you needed to, to have in your armory? Oh man. I was just like guessing Simon. Oh really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's try this.
2: All right. I read this book. Let's try that. And then let me talk to Andy about this and let me talk to others and see what works. A lot of, a lot of it was trial and error. A lot of it was process of illumination. A lot of it was using Andy as a sounding board, but also, I mean, there were some great uh, leaders there too. And and, and Frank and people like Frank as well, right? And then I had a trusted group of people on the team that I always kind of went to. So like Sahir, um, he and I would talk about all sorts of things. I'd be able to kind of at least bounce things off him. Um, Same thing with Frank. I think same thing with, uh, you know, Damon, uh, definitely with Tim, Um, you know, DeVocker, I mean th- there was always kind of a ready s- group of people that I could bounce things off of to either validate or to you know refute what I was thinking. Um, but quite honestly, a lot of it was trying to rely as much on what I had already learned in terms of making sure I'm aligned very closely with you know sales, right? Because I need to make sure that Jim and Carlos and others are hundred percent you know um, getting what they need and I understand and kind of anticipate what it is they might need right? So um, having a, a, a really open and steady uh, cadence with them. Um, and then also, uh, honestly, just figuring out like how to manage people is a hard thing. So like one of the skills that I think I did learn was just being able to have a, a you know, a difficult conversation. People generally shy away from that, right? Because it's, it's not easy to have, um, you know, conflict or contention or that awkward uh, moment where you're giving someone some like really tough feedback. And then also expecting them to, you know, change your behavior or to, you know, ultimately even like let go someone. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I really just by uh, trial by fire, learned that skill um, because I had to, let's put it that way. No one was coaching me necessarily saying like, this is how you have a conversation. We did some training later, right. With, uh, you know, having, um, you know, uh, difficult conversations and um, some of the soft skills. But I think that was one of the things that, you um, I definitely picked up early, but you know to answer your question, it was uh, not out of a book or someone teaching me. And you know as as great as Andy uh, is as a leader and as a manager, I obviously learned a lot from him, just from like his feedback to me. Um, but yeah kind of have to own it and do it yourself at the end of the day, right? And I'll, I mean I made mistakes, right? And looking back, of course, I definitely would have done some things differently. But But you live and learn, and I think that's ultimately you know uh, what's important is how well you can uh, admit to those mistakes and also r- recover from them very quickly. Mm, sure. and not do it again.
1: <laughs> right? So, so, so part of your playbook, uh, another element of your playbook is train people and then train them some more. Is that something that you took from blade logic or BMC, or what you know just tell us a little bit about. That as an element of your playbook,
2: yeah. So you know we call it keeping the the sword sharp, right? So I think I definitely picked up a lot of that from uh, obviously the Blade Logic days, right? Because John uh, and and the mantra was to to train the reps. No matter how much you train them, you train them more on methodology, on the product, competitive uh, intel, on the differentiators, on how to run a first meeting, how to actually have a a conversation with you know a prospect and a customer. So you, you take that to heart and obviously apply it on the technology side. And, and like I said, um, I think the uh, mindset around staying abreast of technology and and kind of being ahead of that is super important. So um, we made that a focal point at Blade Logic to stay ahead of obviously you know what's happening with Blade Logic and kind of the broad uh, set of technologies that we dealt with, right? operating system and kind of starting to go up the stack, the application stack yeah. and the databases. And then at BMC, obviously, we had a huge portfolio, like I said, and we were thinking about, hey, how do we do like major miners? But then also think about how adept we want people to be across the portfolio. So th- that was my first real experience with dealing with a, a, a big um, enablement function, and I think that's where we really homed it. Right? We learned the, the core concept and the philosophy at Blade Logic, but BMC is where we actually learned how to do it, both from a sales methodology perspective, doing like the sales boot camps, right? For the two weeks, doing the constant quarterly training pre and post QBR. That's really where we learn the, um, uh, the operating cadence around that, but then also how to deliver it. And then also learn how to really hone what it is we were doing, whether it was a technical, uh, piece of training, product training, or more importantly, soft skill. So, uh, Again, BMC is where I think a lot of uh, that was refined, because I I, I think we still uh, a lot of us still probably use a lot of the the playbooks from there. Um, but y- you can't train people enough, right? And I think um, it's it's one of these things, especially in pre-sales, where you have to be you know staying on top of uh, the the market and the product and the competition. So it's one of these things that just I honestly just part and parcel with the job. <laughs> mm.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. Um, so after running the Americas, sung for, uh, for several years, mm-hmm. you, you took on briefly, as we said, a, a VP of worldwide sales specialization before taking on a huge role of, of VP of worldwide pre-sales and technical account management. Right. Um, talk us through that, that transition.
2: Yeah. So those four months were me trying to, uh, you know, uh, Andy had actually convinced me at the time because we had gone through some changes with some sales leadership and company changes. Hey, um, might be good for you to look at the sales specialist team, mm. which was kind of an overlay team. It wasn't uh, pre-sales, mm. but it was uh, a role um, that he thought I might be a good fit for. Um, at the time, it kind of made sense, but you know, f- uh, I don't know, one or two months into it, I realized this was not my sweet spot. And then we had more organizational changes anyway, because at that time at, at BMC, it was just change after change after change. So ended up, uh, you know, every SE at some point probably considers Um, going into sales at some point. That was my like dipping the toe in the water, realizing, hey, like, screw this, it's not for me. (laughs) And then also the the reorg ended up just making that answer pretty easy. So then the worldwide role ended up me, um, it was worldwide in the sense I ran basically the team that supported the showcase accounts, we call them at BMC. So all the big accounts, it was, uh, wow, a $650 million book of business. Mm -hmm. And I owned all the functions. So pre-sales, like the software consultants, uh, we were building out and obviously scaling out a business value consulting team, so the value engineering team. Uh, and then we had this uh, you know, technical account management team, which, which was kind of the precursor for what you know as customer success mm-hmm. today. And what you hear so often is the TAM. Yep. So I uh, did that for a few years. Um, and again, I think uh, at some point, um, it was pretty clear to me that uh, there was a lot of um, challenges, but also the, the market, the world was kind of changing, right? So for me, it ended up being uh, a great way to learn some additional functions, I want to say, especially like, you know, running and, and leading a BBC team. And then, um, honestly, learning what I did back then really helps in my current role, right, from a, a customer success point of view. So right. it, was, um, it was a great transition. And again, I did this all under Andy Harwood, right? And it was something that, uh, again, I, I'm forever indebted to him. For, for, again, having the belief, right, in me and un- understanding that, hey, you know, he would constantly give me more scope and more role. And and I think at that, that point, it was, you know, uh, a pretty large team mm. at the time. So, it, it was definitely uh, um, kind of a good way, right, for me to um, think about uh, the evolution, right, having been acquired in and having, you know, just like this Northeast uh, team of like uh, SE specialists to now having kind of this worldwide role. It was, it was pretty, it was pretty great. Right. To look back at that time.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So April, 2015, (laughs) I I imagine, was it Carlos that called you up and said, yeah, come across.
2: I mean, he called me before then. Uh, Obviously that's (laughs) when I, I jumped ship. Because I remember him calling me and and he had been trying to get me over to a few places too, right? Because, uh, you know, he was over at uh, ClearSlide. Um, strangely enough, I, I mean, this I, I guess I can say it now. So I, I did um, interview and accept a job at App Dynamics back in 2013 oh, wow. um, to run pre-sales. I had some stuff going on kind of the personal side um, at the time. So I ended up uh, accepting and having to uh, renege on it, which was obviously like just... Unco- you know, unbeknownst to me, like I just how to get my head wrapped around it. But like looking back, it was kind of a tough time. But at the same time, it was kind of the best move I made because obviously everything worked out in kind of the long run. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carlos tapped me on the shoulder. Obviously, I knew Dave Acheria Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. And you know, just the fact alone that it was kind of in the database space and having had some experience in data and databases, mm-hmm. he's like, "Hey, Sung, just got the CRO gig." what do you think you want to be my kind of partner in crime? I'm condensing it, of course. And, you know, we had a lot of conversations. I ended up uh, having to talk to Dave at Acheria. And remember, he was on the board at Apti. I think he was the one that actually kind of introduced me to to the folks over at Apti. And when I kind of pulled out, I remember thinking like, crap, like I'm like disappointing him. And I'm like, you know, just not in a good place with him. He called me out on it as any great, you know, leader should do. And we talked through and he's like, hey, uh, I'm good. So like, if, you know, let's do this thing. So it was, um, a pretty easy conversation, but it was also a pretty exciting one because remember I said, we are so accustomed to owning keys to the kingdom. We had this open source database that, you know, um, talk about being the stupidest person in the room. I had three or four meetings (laughs) with the co-founder and CTO Elliot. And remember thinking like, God, like I feel so stupid and I have no idea like why they're even like talking to me. And I remember the funny thing there was um, uh, I'd shown up uh, in a, I think a suit the first time when I met him. And then the second time I ended up uh, probably not wearing a tie. And then the third time I ended up wearing jeans and like a blazer. And then I remember his like little snarky comment to me saying like, oh, hey, I think you'll be okay. You're starting to get the picture, right? Like get, <laughs> get the hint because it was very casual. Everyone's in t-shirts, hoodies, right? You yeah. know, uh startup. So I remember thinking, just uh, again, even even then, even though it was five years ago, just feeling very intimidated, right, being surrounded by super smart, uber smart people. Uh, but I think that that was a slightly different this time because I, I knew I had the confidence of Carlos, and I knew that hey, I kind of know what I'm doing at this point, right? So it wasn't as bad, but you just kind of go into it, and and for me personally, that's always been the the best motivator is the, kind of the fear of failure. Hmm. And like you you don't want to suck ever. And I think that's super important to me that I I I you know do well in my my craft. And um I remember you know joining MongoDB with obviously a lot of excitement, but also a lot of trepidation too, because now this was like full on my kit and caboodle. It wasn't like flying the, the plane, it was actually you know building it right and kind of building it while it's sort of flying too, because it was uh it was a really
0: interesting time when I joined. Hmm. Yeah, the company was in transition at that point, right? Towards right. a different offering.
2: Yeah, different offering. Dave had just joined a few months back. Carlos ov- obviously joined the December before, mm. uh, starting to figure out how to do direct sales and do it right into uh, the enterprise segment mm. uh, and how to ultimately just evolve monetizing an open source database, right? So I remember, you know, I think revenue at the time was probably like $20, 25000000 Mm. Um, which, you know, stock difference from where it is today, right? I'm I'm sure, uh, I mean, the public company, and you see where they are, it's like 600 million, I think, you know, run rate. But um, it was a very small team. um, And obviously, Carlos was chartered to build out that entire go-to-market function. Um, They ultimately hired a new uh, CMO right after Megan, who I actually worked for for a little bit. Um, But yeah, it, it, it was exciting, right? Because it was kind of the first, uh opportunity for me to do something clean slate and do it in a way that it was gonna it was gonna be mine hmm. patrick if that makes sense it was my
0: absolutely
2: yeah my, my baby to kind of you know make sure i do enough care and feeding and make sure they're you know growing yeah. versus uh again just uh figuring out how to like uh sometimes it felt like just operating versus like building completely yeah. that makes sense yeah
0: yeah i think that's so interesting how, how did you go about that then what, what what was how did you do that differently was it a specific playbook you created or
2: Yeah, good question so I ended up uh there there were I think about 12 people that I inherited on the team Mm. uh I think we started out with six right because some of them self-selected out others ended up saying uh hey um I want to do this I'm not sure and we kind of made the decision <laughs> jointly saying like hey this is probably not the right path for you yeah. based on like what it is you want to do and what we're looking for mm-hmm. so I ended up with a core team of like six or seven and then um, we had a uh, bench in in EMEA to actually have you know a, a leader that was promoted um, and his name's oh uh, well, actually we had a leader that was kind of running the ship for a while um, that was actually uh, his name's Joe and then uh, in Americas, I ended up hiring externally. So I brought in, you know, obviously um, some trusted individuals on my side. So like John Hong, I brought in um, to help me run, uh, you know, some of the functions. So, you know, net net, I think recruiting was one of the key things. What I changed on the recruiting playbook was really honing in on kind of the profile. So we were looking for the non um the non-negotiables, right? Here are the baseline things that we want to see in terms of characteristics. That actually didn't change much in terms of, you know, high drive, high intellectual curiosity, and and high capacity and kind of that horsepower to run. Um, and obviously the demonstrated domain expertise. But I think where we really nuanced it too was, um, I wanted to look for people who had actually upside because we knew we were going to scale and grow very quickly. And upside, not as great individuals, but like figuring out how we can plan ahead for succession. Meaning, almost look at people who we could hire in that had the path to get to leadership, to be that first line. Cause I mean, we, we had no one, right. If you think about it and um, making sure I had made that first external hire with a key person I trusted, but then also look to build kind of the first wave of leaders was critical. Mm. So like that was one nuance. I think the other thing too, was um, making sure that we really understood what was needed because it's a database and it's open source and we end up uh, with kind of a slightly different target. Uh, we were still trying to sell to IT, but what we really should have been doing even back early then was probably selling more to developers in addition to IT. And we weren't doing that enough. So I had kind of gravitated towards hiring people with kind of that IT ops kind of sys background more so than people who actually knew a lot of, uh, you know, programming languages or, or had a developer background. Mm-hmm. So we quickly made that adjustment once we figured that out too. But but that's my point, right? Even though you come in with a playbook, you've got to iterate on it and then take the learnings saying like, hey, crap, this is not working. We just churned out a bunch of SEs because, hey, this is just not what we need to like drive this sale. Yeah. And that happened over the course of time because as much as we went from like six to just about a hundred um, SEs globally in three years, uh, we probably churned out, you know, uh, maybe, I don't know, 30, 30 or so, which, you know, looking back, maybe not horrible numbers, but, you know, to me personally as a leader, right. It it was always hard to, uh, acknowledge that, Hey, I made a bad hire or we had to, or we made a mistake or this person's not working out. So it was always hard for me just on a personal level to see people, you know, have to be let go or to quit or, you know, to kind of self-select out Mm -hmm. in that regard. So definitely changed that. And then I think the biggest change was honestly just figuring out the sales process and the methodology with, you know, Carlos, with JP Bolin, um, you know, with uh, some great leaders I met like John Siebert, who obviously wasn't from Blade Logic, but he's over at, uh, I think New Relic now, but just honestly figuring out how we want to change the sales process that we were all kind of grown up and used to. And adapt it to the fact that, you know, it's open source, you can download it in a minute and basically have, have it run and people don't even need to talk to anyone, right? And and how do you then monetize something that people can use for free? So really ferreting that out took, I think, quite a bit of time to kind of craft and hone. Mm. Um, so yeah, I would call those two things out as kind of the the two big things. Mm.
1: Fantastic. So... Then you became the VP of Global Strategy, Product Marketing, <laughs> and Developer Relations in March 2018. That's quite a, a, a mouthful. Yeah. So what, yeah. what additional responsibilities did you just take on in, in that promotion?
2: Yeah, so I was I was working, uh, obviously, in the pre-sales world for about three years. And then um, it was actually, I remember this conversation too. Yeah, I guess I remember all the pivotal conversations. <laughs> with kind of career changes. So I was in an airport in uh, Richmond. Um, I had just come out of a meeting with Capital One, with uh, with Dave and with Elliot, um, CEO and CTO, respectively. Mm. And they just kind of asked me point blank, like, hey, wh- how do you think, um, you know, our, our product marketing functions going? And I gave him my opinion and they kind of said like, hey, I, we think you'd be, you know, a good fit. Do you want to like find out some more about it? At first, I was like, no effing way. Like, why would you want me to do that? That's not my background. Mm. But I think um, the flight ended up being delayed, I ended up sitting there with Elliot for just about an hour. And I think the two things that really struck me were the fact that I'd get to work, obviously, very closely with him. Um, I'd get to learn something, because it was, uh, obviously, they were looking for someone who had some of the the product background and knowledge. So I'd be learning everything on kind of the marketing side of the house, uh, working for, for Megan Eisenberg. And then the developer relations thing ended up being something that was uh, obviously very new to me, but something that was absolutely intriguing, right? Because it was all around community building, building awareness, building, you know, kind of this outreach um, in a way that was not meant to be selling anything at all, right? You just kind of help developers do their job uh, differently and in a better way. And just kind of building that piece out was was intriguing, right? So that that was kind of the, uh, the catalyst for that. So... Um, ended up uh, very happily leaving, I think, the, the SA organization because I was very confident in obviously the leadership and, you know, the succession, right? Because we had some great individuals that were promoted into roles like, uh, you know, uh, Mark Alenti, uh, Arthur Vigers. Um, they've all, I mean, Mark is still there now running Americas. Arthur ended up running EMEA for me, and then he um, left to go to a, a company uh, called Pivotal, left there and just joined segment. And obviously they just got acquired by Twilio. So he's, uh, you know, done really well for himself and he's just fantastic, but I felt good thinking, Hey, this is going to be a good time to leave the team kind of at a high and then kind of, you know, take a little bit of a step into doing something different. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so that was the impetus at the time. Right. And kind of the motivation.
1: Mm, Right. And, now, coming coming to the present day, you're, at, you're currently at ThoughtSpot, so you're currently SVP of Customer Success and Field Engineering as of November last year. Um, obviously, Brian McCarthy is there, and I know you've obviously had quite a significant amount of funding. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's obviously going very, very well for you right now. Tell us a little bit about your mission and a little bit about your role um, at present.
2: Yeah. So uh, the the thing that really appealed to me uh, about ThoughtSpot was um, the fact that I would have an opportunity to own the customer journey end to end. So everything except sales. So if you're thinking about pre-sales, if you think about professional services and delivery, uh, customer success and business value consulting, all the ingredients that I knew over the course of the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years are needed in order to land and sell customers, right? Because remember, we're finding out their pain, let's find a pain worth solving. Let's prove that the pain is there, show how we can help capture the metrics and the, you know, here are the positive business outcomes we want to kind of get to, but then make it a reality. Cause we, we sell this pipe dream oftentimes and like going from that initial to ultimately having some realized value and some evidence of value is still so poorly done. So this was a great way for me to just come in and kind of try and own this thing end to end. Work work with some fantastic sales leaders, right? So like Brian McCarthy, I hadn't known, um, had heard quite a bit about him, and J P Bolin, who ended up, you know, I worked several companies with him. Um, he now runs the Americas over at, at ThoughtSpot. Um, he had kind of made the introduction, saying like, "Song, hey, we're looking for this customer success role." Um, same thing. What do you think? I remember I was I remember this conversation too. I was uh, down in a uh, in Kiowa in August, and he had kind of called me saying this. So we ended up. Um, kind of enticing me to, to join uh, ThoughtSpot. And, you know, the company's mission is, is great, right? Because if you think about um, data as a whole, right? You know, having spent some time at MongoDB, um, born out of obviously an operational, you know, uh, transactional database, but obviously, you know, starting to get into or the analytics, uh, real-time near real-time analytics, Uh, as as I was leaving, um, ThoughtSpot was trying to make, you know, uh, a Google-like experience for uh, anyone who wanted to get insight on their data. So think about, uh, obviously, analytics, um, you know, to the next, the nth degree, and making it super simple, not necessarily to people that have a technology background, but any user at all, right? So if you think about um, the mission of the company, it was actually pretty exciting to know that this was going to be very cutting edge, um, end up having a ton of marquee, you know big customer names like Walmart and Nike, and others that um, again, ended up validating that obviously the tech is something that um, mm-hmm. is uh, solving a very big pain. And for me, again, to kind of build build a program out, right and kind of design this um, to your question earlier, Patrick, like, hey, what elements of the playbook have I changed? Mm-hmm. And this is really what it comes down to is like really figuring out um, how I can now own this end to end and really refine and kind of evolve. I think um, even some of the preconceived notions of some of the functions. So like take customer success, for example, I think in kind of its most base, maybe almost like um, uh, perspective, it's someone who's like emailing or calling a customer to say like, hey, are you okay? Do you have what you need? I can help you with these things. Versus I'm trying to flip it on its head a little bit. I uh, actually recruited some of the folks on the team because they're coming from pre-sales backgrounds. yeah. So if you look at the hires I've made, so like, um, uh, well, I'll talk about one of the promotions, right? So Angela um, Hooper, she uh, was running a pre-sales team at ThoughtSpot. She runs uh, my customer success team for the Americas. Hmm. She's a pre-sales person, professional, right? And she was the best fit, I think, because she brings so much of what it is we're trying to do with customer success to the table, having the breadth, the depth, true understanding of the customer pain, but also the ability to interact with customers and solve those things and help them through those first initial obstacles, friction points, having that, you know, the right answer at the right time Mm -hmm. and having that kind of mindset around uh, everything I mentioned earlier. Um, Jim O'Donnell, uh, you know, runs uh, pre-sales formerly at AppDynamics. He's now running pre-sales here at, at, uh, I'm sorry, he's running customer success here at ThoughtSpot. Mm -hmm. Uh, Miriam Graf, she came from Burst running pre-sales. She runs customer success, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think what we're trying to do is really have kind of the breadth and depth around the domain and the ability to have like kind of cut your teeth in pre-sales. But um, if you look at Scott Metcalf who runs, um, you know, uh, one of the customer success teams as well, he comes from a pre-sales background, but also was doing sales. So Mm -hmm. like we're, we're trying all sorts of things because ultimately we want to make sure we can kind of live true to the promise of what we sold a customer to mm-hmm. what they can ultimately realize. Because, you know, if we talk about champions, um, they they will fight for us and sell for us when we're not there. It's our duty and obligation to give them the evidence of the return on their, you know, investment, right? On, on what they've championed us for. So I feel like this was a great opportunity for me to be able to, again, kind of craft this and own it end to end.
0: That's that's really interesting. A, a discipline we see as uh, growing really quickly um, currently, although it's been around for a while. I don't know your thoughts on on how it's evolving. Is is value engineering, so and how closely that kind of aligns to medic methodology and and playbook organizations? Because it's all about the creation of and discovery of pain, right?
2: Yeah, it's definitely the creation and discovery of pain and and quantifying it, right? So that helps, and honestly. Any software company that's not doing it um, is probably doing themselves a disservice, right? Because if you think about um, value framework, uh, what are we really capturing? Future state positive business outcomes, right? So there's some number behind the pain. Hmm. So um, value engineering, business value consulting ultimately helps significantly in that arena to be able to... um, capture it, identify it, but more importantly, build a solid business case and potentially an ROI model depending on what it is you're selling and who you're selling to. Mm. So that's step one though, isn't it, right? Because you can land it and say, hey, we're going to solve all these things and here's what we're proposing. But this is where I think the beauty of what we're trying to do at ThoughtSpot really comes into play is now, how do we then take that and find and capture the value realized? Mm. Because it's always hard um, to, I think, have those details kind of ferreted out and uncovered. Um, So I think for us, the business value consulting function also captures the business value realized. I know you can do it at a very high level with a, a proof point or a win story or a case study, but I'm thinking about it more as how we can arm and give back to our champions, as I said earlier, really around here's the evidence of value because every champion has their own personal win of some kind. So again, it's our obligation and duty to give them that win and give them evidence of that win, but also um, capturing that, that uh, evidence of value just really ensures obviously the higher likelihood that the customer is going to renew, right? There's not going to be any churn because if they're ultimately getting value, and I always posit this, value is binary. It's you either get value or you don't. And you know we don't want to be not providing value. So I think this is where um, business value consulting and value engineering has a huge role in terms of you know really ensuring uh, not just that land but ultimately you know the the net retention right of that that customer because i think in a cloud and SaaS world that's probably one of the most important things you need to really focus on is providing value back
1: mm-hmm. and
2: evidence of having solved that pain that you've identified in, in
0: in the first place yeah yeah that's brilliant and do you think the market conditions and the move towards the license-based model has has driven a lot of that
2: Yeah, for sure, right? Because, I mean, but at the end of the day, it's always about um, uh, justifying the purchase, right? And, you know, at at MongoDB, we ended up doing a lot of CFO-ready business cases because as we sold uh, more and more and sold higher and as more enterprise customers ended up um, having much larger deployments of MongoDB, uh, we ended up having to again have a, a more encompassing ROI and a CFO-ready business case, right? Which was born out of some of the things we learned that and and kind of crafted at BMC, mm. and same thing for ThoughtSpot. You know, David Kopi, who's my director of uh, business value consulting in the Americas, um, he'll do work that's lightweight to build just kind of you know, TCO calculators. But then he'll also spend quite a bit of time uh, dealing with you know big enterprise accounts to really ferret out, here are the multiple use cases, here are the things that um, we're potentially trying to move the needle on for two reasons. Let's kind of optimize their journey with ThoughtSpot. Here's the most logical set of use cases we should hit first to have the biggest uh, business impact and kind of the level of effort. And then here are the things that we might want to do medium long term. So you help them kind of create that map, right? That success journey. But then more importantly, like I said, three, six, nine months later, we want to capture those stories, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not just a business value consultant, but that's something that is in- inherently part of what we do in customer success is mm-hmm. to, you know, identify and capture those benefits.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. Amazing. And um, to, to ask a much broader question, um. Mm-hmm. For for more junior people watching this, you know, junior pre-sales engineers or or individual contributor SEs with a similar drive and, and aspiration to scale their career, what, what are the key things you would advise those individuals to, to be doing on a daily, weekly, monthly basis?
2: Yeah. Oh, it's a great question. So um, here's the thing. With, with the advent of the interweb, right? The internet, information superhighway, whatever you want to call it, It's so increasingly easy to reach out to people, period, Mm. right? So I think the way that, uh, so, so I mean, here's kind of a a personal uh, example of it. So my my oldest son, he's 15, um, he's uh, thinking about a baseball career, obviously plays a ton of baseball. um, And he's uh, kind of at the point now as a freshman in high school where he's thinking about recruiting for colleges, right? So he's been created an Instagram account, created a Twitter account. You guys should follow him, by the way. I'll I'll send you the details. But he um, does this to kind of self-promote, but also to reach out and kind of get exposure to college coaches, right? Because he just wants to kind of build a little bit of an awareness. I think if you take that same mantra that, you know, Matt's taking, um, and my other son, Tim's probably going to be right behind, is, you know, reach out, identify some key people that, you know, you think you may want to connect with or may get some advice from, or may just be good to know to network. Cause I hate the LinkedIn g- generic invite saying like, hey, I wanna connect with you. Personalize it a little bit saying like, hey, really interested in maybe connecting to learn more about this, or maybe just to get connected because of X or Y. Mm-hmm. Um, those get my eyeballs and I will respond typically and say like, hey, would love to just even connect 15 minute conversation, we can do it over Zoom. So I feel like anyone that's junior and kind of starting out in their career, um, dedicate the time every week to figure out, hey, who, who would be, you know, some great people to kind of connect with and try, because I think it's just become so easy. So that's one. I think the second thing too is um, if it is, uh, pre-sales is the career that is so um, well hidden. Like you don't know about this until you kind of know about it. Yeah. And I do think that there's, you know, if anyone's listening and, and, and ultimately kind of taking this to heart, if you care about technology, if you care about solving business problems, and, and want to have something new that you're dealing with, because um you know uh, uh, my my pre-sales leader at ThoughtSpot who runs Americas, his name's uh, Kendrick, uh, Kendrick Heath, um he uh, said something to me uh, a few weeks ago that you know really just kind of crystallized uh, something, which is pre-sales is a, a lifestyle, like <laughs> like like it's a lifestyle. Think about it, right? It ebbs and flows. It's not a nine to five job. You have to live in and breathe it. And I do think that, you know, there's something to be said for the technology and the business kind of, you know, marriage that happens. And if any of those, if that interests you, then like explore it, right, is, is the other piece of advice, because there's a lot of it out there, but it's not well defined like a developer or a DBA or a sysadmin or a sales rep. And I do think that it's one of these careers that you end up um, kind of falling into. So, you know, it's, it's hard to say like, hey, go find this thing when you don't know it exists. But I do think that's why I'm saying just network, right? Because it's there's so much information out there. Even if you uh, are savvy about LinkedIn, it's yeah. just a really good way to kind of get exposure for yourself and just kind of get connected and, yeah. um, you know, kind of work that angle. Yeah. Um, the other thing too is, you know, just stay kind of on top of technology and trends as much as you can because I think that's where um, you might find something that really piques your curiosity yeah. and, um, you know, can be uh, helping to open an opportunity for you.
1: Right. The perfect segue to the final question, which is what technology or area of innovation do you think is going to have the biggest impact on uh, on business in the next decade?
2: In the next decade? That's that's a tough one. Like I said, I, I really suck at thinking about things, you know, in the future and kind of ahead. Um, I will say this, the problem that hasn't been like completely solved is I think still the problem around data, right? Having had the experience at MongoDB, Having had the experience as a DBA and now even at ThoughtSpot, I think we all still sell kind of the promise and the dream of being able to like really unlock the power and unlock, you know, the kind of the secret insights and kind of speed to insight and speed to insight and then action in data. But at, in the reality of it, like data is just being generated, you know, faster and, and you know, uh, more uh, in, in higher volume. And I do think that that's still going to be very much um, the place to be especially with the advent of cloud, especially with, I think, um, how some of the players are going to consolidate, right? Especially in kind of the you know analytics side of the house. I do think that there's going to be quite a bit of um, runway there. Um, the other thing that I'll say is kind of interesting to me, and you know I've, I have a buddy that works over at uh, Uncork, is kind of this low code, no code kind of movement, right? The idea of like composability and the idea of being able to do things, you know, the last few years have all been about developers, right? sell to developers, um, the explosion of developers. And now it's almost like this abstraction layer of like, hey, you don't need to be a hardcore developer, but now you can have this um, ability to kind of build apps and build things with kind of this low code, no code um, concept. So I think that might be a really interesting space to kind of look at and see. Um, But beyond that, man, I I don't know. I mean, (laughs) who knows five years from now, like what the heck's going to be happening, especially
1: these days. Well, some some very interesting uh, concepts there. So thank you for all that. So I suppose this is the point where we then summarize what we've heard today um, in what's been a, a really, really great um, interview. You know, it's been obviously been very, very eye opening. So I suppose I just want to reflect on a few things that I think we've heard today. And I think the very first place to start is understanding your mindset about the importance of the marriage between business and technology. And I think that when we talk about the 33 CXOs and the incredible success that these guys have gone on to achieve, such incredible, mind-boggling, statistically impossible things, it wouldn't have been possible if they didn't have the support of a pre-sales function by their side that was able to translate that relationship and make sense and get that traction between what they're trying to sell, the value and the business pain. And I think that the reason why looking at yourself, Sung, and the, the incredible success that you've gone on to go and have is because of your ability to really be true to that mindset of always having that natural curiosity, which has served you so well from day one to go and really figure things out. But I think also, you, you, you epitomize a lot of the criteria which has enabled you to always elevate yourself without necessarily having to necessarily ask. Because you've always attached yourself to the business value, you've always maintained that relevance and sales leaders want that next to them because you bring so much value and your sheer dedication and enthusiasm to figure things out be successful and, and and it's no surprise to 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 all of us why you find yourself where you do today so i just want to say a really big thank you for taking the time to speak to us uh, you know i speak on behalf of you know us the viewers, the listeners, I'm sure they've taken lots and lots from today's session. So thank you so much for speaking with us today. Simon,
2: thank you. Patrick, thank you. This was so much fun. I appreciate the opportunity immensely.
1: Yeah, it's
0: it's been truly fascinating and and an absolute pleasure as well. So thank you, Sam.
1: So to our listeners, I just want to say a big thank you for joining us today. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please remember to subscribe. There's lots and lots of content available on our blog. So please do check out so much forward slash blog, and please tune in for another session soon. Thank you very much for joining us today. And that's a wrap.
2: Thank you wow i didn't wow that was about, really was ranting and raving about all sorts of
1: stuff right <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that was it really was it really was it, really was it too too no, no 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 it was it was too nothing